How many times have you eaten today? Once, twice maybe? Do you remember what you ate? Each ingredient. And did you check each ingredient for E. coli, salmonella, listeria? Probably not, right? I mean, that sounds insane. Surely it's safe or you wouldn't have been able to buy it, right? I mean, this isn't some developing country where you have to worry about contamination or pathogens, right? Wrong. Every year, one out of every six people in the United States will get foodborne illness. That's 48 million people. 128,000 get so sick that they are hospitalized and 3,000 people die. And that doesn't even account for the parts of our food system that hurt us slowly. And in that space, the U.S. is actually unique among peer nations. It's, it's weird. Why are some chemicals and food additives allowed in the U.S. and banned in Europe because they're known to cause cancer? Why do U.S. food companies make healthier versions of their products to sell in other countries and unhealthy versions to sell to us? Why don't we have mandatory limits on sodium when experts have been saying that cutting sodium nationwide could prevent more than 100,000 deaths a year, not to mention the billions it would save in healthcare costs? And some of my more libertarian listeners might be thinking, it's not the government's place to tell us what we can eat. If a free adult wants to kill themselves with sodium, let them. And sure, okay. But what about the babies? Children. Health groups and Congress have repeatedly flagged reports that heavy metals and toxic elements are present in baby food. Things like arsenic and lead. Lead exposure in children can cause behavioral problems and lower IQ. And... Babies aren't old enough to choose unhealthy food or take on that risk. And most parents don't have an inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometer instrument in the kitchen next to the toaster. So they have to trust that the food that their baby... So they have to trust that the food they're feeding their baby is safe. But it often isn't. So much of these things, the illnesses, fast and slow, the additives, the diseases, the deaths, they're all a choice. But it's not our choice. The choice belongs to the FDA. The FDA has had a working group working on toxic chemicals in baby food for six years, and they've yet to produce any meaningful policies to fix the issue. They've been working on sodium limits since 2010, and the FDA's most recent four-year delay is estimated to have caused 250,000 unnecessary deaths. And that's not even the worst of it. Like, there are some issues that they've been working on for literal decades and still nothing. It's insane. And the only reason that we even know about these things is because of the bombshell investigative reporting conducted by Helena Bottomiller-Evich. One of her investigative reports was published by Politico, and it lit up the failures of the FDA. Failures so egregious that they caught the attention of the Washington Post editorial board and Congress. Helena led coverage of food and agriculture issues at Politico for nearly a decade. She's won a lot of awards, including a George Polk Award for a series on climate change and two James Beard Awards for features on nutrition and science. In 2022, she was a James Beard Award finalist for a deep dive on diet-related diseases and COVID-19. Before launching Politico's food policy coverage in 2013, she was a Washington correspondent for Food Safety News, where she covered deadly foodborne illness outbreaks and the run-up to Congress passing the most significant update to food safety law in a century. She's good, guys. She's really good. And I really enjoyed this conversation, even though I found the topic frequently frustrating. I hope that you guys enjoy it and are just as infuriated by it as I am. Without any further ado, I'm Hillary Lombard, and this is Moderate Party. Let's get started. 
I want to start with a just a personal curiosity, I guess. What made you want to cover food policy? It's not like a buzzy, popular area of journalism for a lot of people. So I'm just curious, what drove you there? Yeah, I get this question a lot. I'm unique in that most people who are in journalism at my age, I graduated from college in 2009, which was like the heart of the financial crisis. So if you went into journalism in 2009... Most people, brave time. it was because yeah, it's because they wanted to be a reporter since they were like five. And actually, that wasn't me. I was a gov major and was really interested in public policy. And I was kind of personally interested in food. I grew up spending a lot of time with my my grandpa had a produce market uh, here that my uncle eventually overtook. And so I kind of grew up around food. Like I would go with my grandpa to pick up peaches and and things and went into Pittsburgh to what is actually still called the Strip and for for like a century was where all the rail cars would come in and bring produce. And then, you know, all everyone would come pick it up and then take it out to their markets. And it was just a, a how produce was distributed back then. So I, I think I just grew up with some level of awareness. So I was personally interested in food and I really liked public policy. And I ended up writing my thesis in college on food policy because I was kind of combining the two. And at the time, like there was no one, I, there were no classes. Like you can actually find food policy programs now, which is great. There's a lot of interest in food and ag um, for undergrads. But at the time I was sort of alone. It was, I had to find, I think, a healthcare, a healthcare policy um, professor to be my advisor. But through my thesis, which was on FDA politics during the Bush administration, I ended up interviewing a bunch of experts on food safety regulation, and that's how I fell into journalism. I ended up going to D.C. in 2009, right when the Food Safety Modernization Act, which was this massive update to food safety law, was actually being debated in Congress. So it was just really good timing, and I sort of fell into it topic first. So I was always focused on food policy from the beginning. And that just makes me a very unusual case because I have been covering food policy now for 15 years. Um, and most reporters are going to jump around topic to topic. So I'm just very unusual in that way. It's a little, it's a roundabout answer, but I always like to give kind of the full arc of it because I get questions a lot from young people like, how do you get into this or how do you cover food policy? And the tough thing about it is a lot of mainstream news outlets do not see this as a real beat. They often won't even have someone covering food and ag as like a sector or an industry, which to me is crazy because it's like a more than trillion dollar part of the economy or more, depending on how you slice it, you wouldn't not cover like finance or education or like any other major tenet of like American. I think it's a real blind spot because I'll look around and be like, man, like, where's the Washington Post? Where's USA Today? Where's New York Times? You know, like these are national stories that affect millions of people. The programs I cover affect millions of people. Programs like SNAP, the, um, Still a lot of people know it as food stamps. You know, we're talking more than 40 million people in the U.S. School meals, 30 million kids every day. Um, There's so many. Food safety regulation affects everyone. Um, You can kind of go down the list. Food labeling. We all see the nutrition facts panel, or maybe we see calories 
a Starbucks or or not. Maybe we ignore them, right? But there's, yeah. there's these these issues affect everyone. Um, mm-hmm. so it's 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 an odd thing because it's seen as this like niche topic, but it's I would argue it's not that's a hill I'll die on. But well, it's kind of. Like I'm personally one of the interested. Very- I'm weird that I've gotten to focus on it for this long. Yep. I think food is like one of the very few things that every American still has in common. Like we all eat it. And I mean, like, like, I feel you that it's undercovered. We talk about how different information ecosystems influence your politics. But I think for food and ag, it's more like a lack of any information at all. Like, it's not that you're getting partisan news. You're getting no news most of the time. I mean, any kind of consistent food coverage is from industry publications. And you're a rare exception to that. I'll just say for listeners that don't know what a big deal you are, you started and there was nobody that was really doing what you were doing. The Washington Post wasn't covering it. And now their editorial board is responding to your investigative work. Members of Congress are tweeting out your articles. That's got to feel pretty awesome, right? Yeah, it was very cool to see. During the infant formula crisis, I think there was a little bit more recognition among editors like, oh, this is a big deal, right? Like having a part of your infrastructure go down, in this case for feeding infants, it's it's like a, a critical, critical issue, potentially like a, a crisis in which, you know, lives are at stake. So we saw more news coverage and focus during the infant formula crisis. But the thing I worry about, and I did a lot of reporting on that while I was at Politico about, you know, warnings that were missed, the FDA being slowed to respond in that situation, and then the rippling effects of having a major plant closure essentially throttle the rest of the supply chain. The thing that really makes me worried about all that is like the market is still super consolidated there. You know, it hasn't changed Mm -hmm. at all. And that could totally happen again. There are not that many reporters that focus on these issues and I wish there were more. Like I want more competition, right? Like I think these issues are so important that they that they they deserve more um, national attention. Often it's in response to a crisis, though, unfortunately. Okay, so let's talk about your investigation of the FDA. What made you want to investigate them in the first place? Like, how did that get started? So I had been covering FDA's slowness on issues basically my entire career. So um, it was kind of the culmination of beat reporting for a long time. But the reason we did one story that really tied it all together and laid out the state of play at at FDA, which was, you know, important issues are not addressed. They take a long time. And issues like not just food safety, but, you know, reducing sodium in the food supply, which is considered a major public health priority to try to reduce cardiovascular disease. There's also things like updating some of the archaic regulations around like what can be labeled as yogurt, all sorts of things that are just not being addressed. They're hanging around forever, ranging from issues that are like annoying to the yogurt industry to like deadly, which are like leafy green outbreaks, right? Mm-hmm. So so health issues that are important are not being addressed in a timely fashion. They're taking, yeah, sometimes decades. And had this wonderful editor named Peter Canellis. And I think we were actually talking about heavy metals and baby food. I think we were having coffee. And I I was saying, well, you know, 
it'll take FDA years and years to set even voluntary standards for heavy metals and baby food because we had a, a few standards for lead, but like generally there aren't heavy metal standards for baby food. And he's looking at me, he's like, why is that? Why does it take years and years to do anything? I was like, well, that's just how it is at FDA. That's just how it is. That's what that's, things take years and years and years. And he's like, we should write about why that is. Like, I'll just unpack why that is. And I was like, yeah, I mean, sure. Because in my mind, it's almost, it's not news. That story, <laughs> yeah. if you work in food where I just unpack, like, this took 10 years, this took, this still hasn't happened. It's been 15 years. This takes 20 years, you know. People who work in this space, that's not news to them. Like, they're like, yes, I've been living this. This is taking forever. But when you put it all together and you lay out all of the issues that they've been sort of dragging their feet on, it it became this powerful sort of illustration of an agency that's just not functioning properly or not functioning as people expect it to. That's what made it powerful. Very, very little in that story was actually new. I think some of the new parts were like, the power struggle between officials and laying out sort of some of the political structures that make it so that Congress doesn't really hold FDA accountable. But by and large, it was like walking through their timelines, which are just objectively long. One of them in the yeah. in your report is 40 years. And it was a non-consequential issue where I think the French dressing industry had asked for like regulatory flexibility. So there wasn't such a strict definition of French dressing. Like it was such an old issue, like no one could even really remember what was at stake. And by the time FDA had finally decided on it, you couldn't even like find anyone who cared about it anymore. <laughs> like that's how long it took. It was just, it's like a satire. I mean, it, it's definitely ridiculous. When I was reading through your report, one of the things that I just could not get past is how nobody is holding the FDA accountable. Like, nobody. And a lot of it just seems to be finger-pointing. Like, who is in charge of this? The complicated jurisdictions and sort of bureaucratic structure make it a lot more complicated um, for all those reasons. And also, like, when you look at the committees on the Hill, it's no one has ownership over like food and nutrition specifically. So mm -hmm. ag is a little bit more clarified because we have a House and Senate ag committee. So like if it's production side, right, if it's worries about crop insurance or flooding, that's pretty clear. But when you zoom out even one layer and you're like, who's in charge of like diet related diseases and how that connects to like agriculture policy then you're then you start being like who knows right like the fda <laughs> is technically under the senate health committee health education and labor and they recently held a hearing a couple weeks ago on diabetes and they were talking about diet related diseases and like health and food access and like food affordability and i'm sitting there going i cannot remember the last time the health committee talked about nutrition or food and like that's such a huge component in health and you're like well whose job is it to really lead on it and, and make sure we're making progress the same way you would have a committee go yikes the opioid crisis really mm -hmm. taking a toll you know we need to hold hearings we need to be focused on it and I'm not saying we've done a good job with that but I think that's gotten more attention compared to some of these other challenges um, so it's a hard one I think also Food and nutrition access and, and hunger are just are also really difficult 
problems to solve, right? And there's oftentimes a lack of enthusiasm from like politicians wanting to jump in and tackle things that take a really long time to solve, Mm -hmm. to work on. So I think I kind of want to back up a little bit and set the table because we're talking about complicated jurisdiction. I think that the two biggest groups that we need to kind of untangle are the USDA and the FDA. So can you explain to our listeners the difference between what each of those agencies is responsible for when it comes to the U.S. food system? Yeah, great question. I think there's a lot of confusion about this. So USDA's main job is to like promote American agriculture. And that does include things like risk management. So crop insurance, things like conservation programs. There's so many programs under USDA, but the the main objective is keeping American agriculture strong. Under that, the vast majority of the spending at USDA is actually for nutrition programs. So um, making sure that Americans can afford to buy groceries. So the SNAP program would be the largest there. It's over $100 billion a year at this point, and that serves more than 40 million Americans. They also run the WIC program, school meals. Um, there's child care and adult care feeding programs. There's uh, programs targeted at seniors. It is a brawling uh, department. It also includes, like, the Forest Service. The Forest Service, yes. I mean, you could—it is—honestly, the breadth of USDA is is astonishing. It's also one of the largest federal agencies, and they do, USDA does food safety, but only for meat and poultry and cracked eggs. So the eggs are cracked and processed, like liquid eggs that you buy or maybe liquid eggs that are used in commercial uh, production. That's USDA. FDA, their main role in the food system is food safety and nutrition. But meat and poultry are carved out at USDA. They're doing basically everything else. So produce, anything processed in a production facility, so cereals, canned food, all of that. It's about 80% of the food supply. Uh, And then they're also doing nutrition labeling. So making sure, you know, nutrition facts, they're setting the policy for nutrition facts, the labels you see on food packages. And they do whole eggs. Not the shell or the shell eggs. So eggs that are still in the shell, that's going to fall under FDA. So there's just this kind of silliness between, I mean, you have to draw a line somewhere. And it is all this whole food safety system we have kind of came together piecemeal. Um, They do cheese pizza, but USDA does pepperoni pizza, for example. So there's all sorts of examples like that. So there's all sorts of complexity there. And then also they don't always work well together. Also, their models are very different. So when it comes to food safety, USDA is in meat and poultry plants every day. They cannot operate at all without USDA inspectors on site. FDA does not have the resources to do anything like that. So their inspection model is much more like, you know, they might inspect every couple of years. For something like infant formula, they're supposed to be inspecting every year. It's just a much more um hands-off inspection process. So they they're gonna set rules they expect everyone to follow, but in terms of actually being in the facility or at like a produce packing house or something, that's just gonna be much more infrequent. And then overseas, there's hundreds of thousands of facilities that are sending food to the US and FDA has a really hard time getting to very many of those. They have a really, really big job, especially compared to their budget. So 
it's probably a situation where FDA has never really been set up to do what consumers expect. I think consumers kind of have this idea like, oh, things are inspected. Right. People just assume that if food is in the grocery store, that means that it's safe or it's been tested or inspected or whatever. I mean, you you just and not that like inspection is the only thing that would make food safe. But I think there is just a a big mismatch between what consumers think that an agency like FDA can or is doing and what FDA is actually doing. I think that's like the biggest takeaway. Can you explain that a little bit more? Well, like mm-hmm. if you are serving your kid baby food, there's just this expectation of like, oh, well, all the ingredients would be vetted or this plant would be inspected regularly. There, I think there's just this expectation that there's a level of oversight that doesn't really exist. Most of that oversight is happening through like retailers mm-hmm. and buyers saying, I'm not going to buy from you unless you do X, Y, and Z. And so a lot of it's actually driven by the private sector, not by government regulation. I think there's just um, some, I just don't think that's well understood. And I'm guessing that that lack of oversight, the lack of inspections, it's a budget issue, right? Because when you were talking about the USDA SNAP program, that's like $100 billion, which would be 100 times more than the FDA's budget for human food, right? Yep, yep. Yeah, so USDA's FSIS, the Food Safety and Inspection Service, just mm-hmm. that division that just does meat and poultry has about the same budget as FDA's entire budget for all of nutrition, food safety for the other 80% of the food supply. What? Yep. Very lopsided. Basically, everyone agrees that if you were to start from scratch, you would not design a food safety system this way where there's multiple agencies involved. It's just not the smartest way to set it up. And there's been some calls to create like a um, single food safety agency that would combine everything into one so that it would be more coordinated. But that's really difficult to do for all the jurisdictional reasons we just mentioned. Like one committee has ownership of one piece, another committee has ownership of another piece, and they don't want to give that up. And when you say committees, you mean a congressional committee, right? A congressional committee, yeah, that has jurisdiction either over the budget or over the oversight of that agency. And those committees are very resistant to ever giving up jurisdiction, even if they're not doing any oversight, right? Like even if they've, yeah, (laughs) like we're not losing that additional word in our title, not today. Exactly, exactly, yeah. It's um, it's like a pride thing. So we've got this system, and it sucks, right? But this system isn't working. Food safety is just a mess. But it's not like we haven't tried to reform this, right? I mean, I think about the Food Safety Modernization Act, or FISMA. It was this attempt to do a big overhaul, right? I mean, for listeners that might not be familiar with FISMA, it's this big piece of food safety legislation that was passed during the Obama administration in response to several high-profile outbreaks of foodborne illness. And it basically sets a congressional mandate that it's not enough to react to these outbreaks. You actually have to try and prevent them. And, like, it's a big deal, right? I mean, I mean, we're all excited about FISMA. And it sets out these seven core principles that are going to help us, like, redefine food safety laws in our food safety system. Um, and that happens in, like, 2011. And by 2015, Helena, you write, I'm quoting, Our failure to overhaul our food safety laws is an example of how momentum can be lost without leadership. 
Do you think that's still true today? Like, do you think that a lack of leadership is still preventing us from doing any kind of overhaul or making any kind of change? Even if we give up that idea of starting from scratch, like, is leadership the reason that we can't get out of this? Yeah, it's such a good question. I think it's, I mean, it's it's so hard to get Washington to focus on issues long term, like for so many reasons, right? But I think with the with the example of food safety, basically what Congress did is they passed this, you know, they passed FISMA, which was basically the biggest update to food safety law in like a century. Like since, you know, we're talking um, Teddy Roosevelt. Like, it, it, I mean, it was a really big update and it did exactly what you just said. It was trying to switch over from reacting, primarily reacting to problems to figuring out what you need to do to prevent them and ex- and making it clear that food companies were expected to do certain things, like meet rules, right? There were a lot of regulations that came out of FISMA, but FDA also was very slow in issuing some of the most important regulations. One of them, which is a big deal in California, is the setting standards for agricultural water. So basically the water you're using in produce. So fresh produce water has long been known to be a source of contamination. It's something you have to manage and FDA. Can I just pause you? Yeah. It is because there's literal shit in the water. Yep. That cows shit in the water and then we take that water that is full of shit and we sprinkle it over the produce that you eat and thus it is contaminated. Is that fair to say? It could be that. It could also be birds, right? That birds fly into a CAFO, a confined animal feeding operation with cattle, and then they get some E. coli on their feet and then they take a little dip in the irrigation canal. I mean, there's just a myriad of ways. But yes, it always comes back to the cattle. So this is just a known issue. I mean, one of the um, major outbreaks that led to FISMA was the 2006 spinach um, e. coli outbreak, which was deadly. I mean, people may remember, listeners may remember, spinach just disappeared from American grocery stores for like a while in 2006 um, because they didn't know where exactly where it was coming from. They knew it was spinach and they didn't have, um, we could talk a lot about why traceability is important, right? But anyway, this is a known issue, right? This is a known challenge that needs to be addressed by industry, by government. And so that's one example of the the issues that FISMA was supposed to address. And we are still in the process of getting water standards in place. So long, long road because it's, you know, check the calendar. It's almost 2024 as we're recording this. So January 2011 is when Obama signed that. So 13 years later. We're still trying to get some pieces into place, including traceability rules. And I mean, there's a lot of loose ends. But the reason there are so many loose ends is that there hasn't been sustained political pressure to finish that job, right, to implement that law and to fund it. So the Congressional Budget Office, when that law was passed, estimated that it would cost about $1.4 billion in additional funding to implement it. And FDA has gotten nowhere close to that. They've definitely gotten, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars added to their budget, but nowhere near that level. You know, it, it, you need inspectors, you need to hire people. They're having trouble even hanging on to the inspectors they have. You need to be able to pay states to help you with these inspections, which, you know, requires money. So while there's been, I think, improvement in making the system more preventive, 
the reality is we're still having very similar outbreaks. I mean, just right now, we have an incredibly deadly salmonella outbreak tied to um, cantaloupes from Mexico. I think it's somewhere around 400 people have been sickened across the U.S. and Canada. And several people have died, like really deadly, terrible situation. And Bismo was supposed to prevent this. So we don't know exactly what happened in this situation, but they keep happening. There's a listeria outbreak tied to um, some stone fruit. There's a applesauce pouch recall tied to lead. So we don't know how this happened, but really, really high levels of lead in cinnamon ended up in cinnamon applesauce pouches for children. And CDC has more than 200 reports now of children with elevated lead levels. So the issues persist. FDA continues to be underfunded compared to what Congress said or what CBO said they would need to implement this law. And then there's been a lack of kind of follow-up and a lack of political pressure to implement all of the remaining pieces of FSMA. And then on top of that, you have all of these other issues, which I've reported on the last couple of years, which is the dysfunction within FDA itself. There's been turf battles. There's been unclear structure in terms of who's in charge of what. I mean, there's been a lot of issues there. So it's it's been kind of a mess. And And now... There's an attempt to reorganize FDA, to make reporting clearer, to put someone clearly in charge. Um, and these are all things that need to happen because if you have a crisis or crises happening, you need like clear decision making. You need an agency that's able to move. And it's been a long road. So my entire time reporting on this agency has been crisis after crisis, right? There's been a lot of them. So. I guess like one of the disconnects for me is that I'm hearing you that we failed to get sustained political pressure. Do you have any inclination about why that is? Because every year we have like 128,000 people that are getting hospitalized and 3,000 people that die from foodborne illness, which you think would be pretty motivating when it comes to political pressure, but it's not. Do you have any idea why? Yeah, I think at this point, it requires a pretty big crisis for congressional attention. Just as an example, the cantaloupe outbreak, which is really bad, I don't think that'll get a congressional hearing. The applesauce mm. pouch incident, we're talking children having potentially reduced IQ, behavioral problems, neurological issues. I mean, lead poisoning and consuming lead is really serious. I, there's no congressional hearing even in the works. And we all know, well, maybe not everyone knows, a congressional hearing doesn't necessarily lead to action, but it but it suggests like some level of attention. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a good question. I don't know what it really takes to get Congress to pay attention to these, these issues. Certainly during the infant formula crisis, that became so bad. Shelves being bare, Members of the Congress were hearing about this from their constituents. There was a lot of concern, and it was bipartisan concern. But that was like a crisis where this was on CNN, Good Morning America. I mean, this was like blasted everywhere. Mm -hmm. So the level of breakthrough that a crisis has to achieve, I think, for Congress to really pay attention to is just really high, Unfortunately, and it hasn't always been this case. Back in 2010, 2011, 2009, that kind of era, there were several hearings 
on foodborne illness outbreaks. Um, and I'm not sure why, like, those outbreaks broke through more. Maybe there was sort of a series of of bad ones. I don't know if you remember the really bad peanut butter one in 2009. Mm-hmm. That was like, it was like 5,000 products were recalled or something. This contaminated peanut butter just like was everywhere in the food system. And the executives, really I think, were particularly Bond villain-esque, which I think has led to good media coverage as well. Yeah, one of them's in prison. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which is a big deal for a food recall. Like that's a it's a big deal. Super unusual. Um, yeah, I mean, there were emails where the executives were like, ship it out, even after I had tested positive. So yeah. Villain-esque is it was a particularly egregious example for sure, but it's just hard to get Congress to pay attention to this stuff. Um, and I mean, it's not just food. There's lots of challenges that Congress has a hard time paying attention to. I mean, Congress is passing fewer bills now than they ever have in modern history. I mean, Congress as an institution is not functioning particularly well. Right. That's putting it lightly. So, you know, I think some of it is that, that it's not um, a healthy institution. And that's not really in debate, right? I'm not pontificating. No, I think that that's almost like objective fact. Yeah. <laughs> there are numbers. Someone um, analyzed like how many bills and this particular Congress has passed. Like, like 26 or 28. It was really low. Really low. Yeah. Out of 700 potential, I believe. So it's, we're not crushing it. Well, even great, even grading on a curve, that is <laughs> you're not yeah. doing great. It's like, what's after an F? It's bad. So speaking of things that are worse than an F, like, where does this leave us with the FDA? Like, are there any signs of improvement here? Yeah. This applesauce pouch incident is a good example. FDA actually did move quickly in this situation. They found out from the state of North Carolina that they had figured out that it was these pouches likely leading to elevated lead levels in children. And FDA, like, I think within a matter of three days, like, had a public health alert out, had a voluntary recall, like, in the works. And that's very, very quick. Sometimes these things take months and hundreds more children could be exposed and potentially have, you know, lowered IQ or developmental issue. I mean, there's so so many issues that can be associated with um, lead exposure. So these issues matter a lot, right? And the hope is that FDA is going to become more responsive. They do have a more clear structure in place now to make decisions. I think Consumer advocates are hopeful that they'll start functioning a little bit better. Are you hopeful that they will start functioning better? I am cautiously optimistic. I think, you know, we'll see. FDA did move really quickly initially in this applesauce investigation, but I pointed out a couple weeks later, you know, they still weren't in the plant. It took them, I think, more than six weeks to get inspectors into the plant in question. I mean, that's not a fast timeline. So mm-hmm. I think the results will speak for themselves, and that's what I'll be looking for. So we have seen yeah. that they got increased funding, particularly for food safety, or at least they're asking for it in the budget. I mean, we'll see what happens. Some of FDA's challenges right now are trying to get its own house in order, get its reorg complete. They have a new leader um, in charge of food now. Same as Jim Jones. He came, he had a long career at EPA, and he seems to be empowered to make decisions, which is a good thing. But we'll see. I'll be watching. And I 
I follow this all really closely. So, you know, if they have a long timeline on an investigation, I have no problem noting that. I write about this every week for Food Fix, which is my newsletter all about food policy. And I think um, it's good to have sustained attention, right? Mm -hmm. On just like, Mm -hmm. how, how is this investigation going? Is it unfolding in a timely fashion? I will say one other thing to give them credit. They've been issuing a lot of really regular updates about the applesauce situation. So if any parents are listening or caregivers, you have little kids who might have consumed these applesauce pouches, you should definitely look at FDA.gov. See if you had the recalled products. And if you did, if your kids did consume them, you should talk to your pediatrician about getting a blood test. Um, But I think having media attention on these things is good, right? Yeah, absolutely. I think that that's why the work that you're doing right now is so important. We need the attention on these issues if they're ever going to get better. So one of the questions that I had coming out of your report on the FDA is basically, who is the system working for? Because I think that whenever you have a system that's fundamentally broken, there has to be somebody that's benefiting from keeping it that way. But throughout, or in reading your reporting, it's like the food industry isn't necessarily benefiting from it, and consumers definitely aren't benefiting from it. Does anybody benefit from the system in its current broken form? It's a really good question. I think there, I think on the surface, you would think the food industry does benefit because, like, for example, there's not a lot of scrutiny of food additives, food chemicals. You could go on all day about this. A lot of food chemicals are added to the food supply through a process known as grass, which is generally recognized as safe, which is a process by which companies and experts outside of FDA just determine things are generally recognized as safe. So FDA is not approving those things. You would you could argue like, oh, well, that benefits the food industry. But I think if you zoom out and you talk to people in the food industry, they they do not feel like they benefit from an FDA that's unpredictable, slow, reactive, Like, I mean, if you have one of these massive recalls, it's incredibly expensive. It's incredibly hard on consumer confidence. It drags down Americans' confidence in food supply generally. Like, they're they're bad, right? Like, the food food companies don't want to have these issues either. And when it comes to these things, like, what can we call yogurt or what can we call French dressing? They also want certainty and clarity. Mm -hmm. And so, it I think it is true that this system doesn't work great for food companies either. And a lot of food trade associations have been part of pushing now for the reorg of FDA, along with consumer groups. They're hand in hand saying, like, this isn't working. Um, We want to see clear decision making. And that's one of the reasons why FDA has been pressured to actually reorganize. It's like that story I wrote, which was incredibly embarrassing, the infant formula crisis, which briefly had Congress like breathing down their neck going, Mm -hmm. what's going on over here? Um, And then a kind of unusual coalition of trade associations from the industry, consumer groups, even some environmental groups banded together and said, yeah, no, we also want you to reorg and try to make this a more functional agency. And so it's been an interesting storyline because I had no idea that any of those things would happen. So So I think that uh, you hinted a little bit at your uh, newsletter, Food Fix. Can you tell us a little bit more about it? 
Yeah, so I was at Politico for nearly a decade covering food and ag there. Um, I left in 2022 to launch my own newsletter dedicated to food policy called Food Fix. And anyone can sign up to read it for free every Friday. It's just foodfix.co. Or you can just Google Food Fix newsletter and it will come up. Um, and I cover all these issues, everything from food safety to nutrition to, you know, whatever outbreak is going on. Um, I also cover NAP and WIC and all of these federal nutrition programs. Um, and it's just really a dedicated place for um, for anyone to follow what's going on. I try to make it really consumer friendly, but then I also have a Tuesday newsletter so paid subscribers can get it twice a week. And the the paid newsletter just has a little bit more about like what's going on inside Washington and um, what's coming up with different topics and whether it's the farm bill, which is oh very much on hold, talk, talk, <laughs> going back to congressional dysfunction, um, or whether it's, you know, I've been covering a lot of the questions around what does Ozempic and these new weight loss drugs mean for the food industry and public health and you know, how are we thinking about all of that? So I try to track the interesting storylines li- story in food, and it's a dedicated place for that. Um, and I'm still freelancing a bit outside of that, but mostly that is my focus. And it's been great. I have a really good audience of consumers and then also people who work in the food industry or who work at FDA or who work at USDA. And so it's a good kind of blended audience of experts and non-experts. And what do you think that we should all be watching in the coming year when it comes to food policy or reforms at the FDA? I mean, the the one big, big one is what's going to happen with the Farm Bill. Um, Congress was supposed to reauthorize the Farm Bill in 2023. Um, <laughs> instead, they kicked the can down the road for another year. Um, there's a lot of reasons uh, for that. But the, the biggest one is just Congress is not functioning well. Uh, so it's hard to get anything done, right? It's not it's not really mm-hmm. specific to the farm bill, but um the farm bill is trickier now politically because um a bigger share of the funding goes to SNAP or nutrition. And so that has made it harder to pull folk to keep folks on the right to support it, um, because they want to cut nutrition funding. And Democrats will absolutely not cut nutrition funding. So you get into this kind of difficult place. That's like probably the simplest high-level way of explaining it. And there's lots of other fights about other things below that. Um, so what happens to the farm bill will be a big one. Um, you know, the extent to which any of these issues get sucked into the 2024 um, election cycle is always something to watch. So, you know, right now I don't see any of these current issues like cantaloupe or applesauce pouches becoming hot button political issues but if they were to explode in the number of people involved um i think one of the things i'm always watching is like are we does that start to um fuel some blowback about you know global globalization global supply chains these are imported foods you know that can become quickly sort of a a hot button political issue um certainly watching how FDA proceeds with their reorg. They have to get some things approved through Congress and through like OMB. There's a lot of like 
inside Washington stuff that has to happen there. Um, and then also, I mean, frankly, this the um, the weight loss drugs, Ozempic, um, Wegovy, that whole class of GLP-1 agonists, which I'm sure you've read about a fair amount or have seen buzz about. Um, that's going to be a huge storyline in 2024, either the extent to which it's you know, more and more adopted and is cha- potentially changing people's eating habits and potentially threatening certain parts of the food industry. Or, you know, we find out more about it and maybe it stops having as much momentum. Maybe there are side effects that we learn about. I mean, I think that's going to be a big storyline because, you know, more than 40% of American adults now have obesity in the U.S. 70% of Americans are considered overweight. And so, the potential market for that for those drugs is is quite large and for those who might not be familiar if you go on one of these drugs for weight loss the average calorie cut is like 20 to 30% and some of these wall street analysts are project- projecting that like a pretty significant chunk of the american population could be on these drugs in the next decade so mm-hmm. what does that mean what does that mean for everything these are some of the storylines I'll be following. I'm sure I'm missing some. I'm sure there'll be, oh God, I can't, I can't even think about it, but the infant formula um, situation has took a really long time to normalize and feels like it's in kind of a normal place, but I'm always like watching that out of the corner of my eye. Like that was such an intense um, crisis to go through in terms of like Mm -hmm. bare shelves for pasta is one thing. Bare shelves for infant formula, totally different level of, like, danger and crisis. I mean, this is just a a side note, but I had no idea. There are thousands of people in the U.S. who can't consume food. They have to, they survive solely on these specialized formulas. Um, They might have a metabolic condition or, like, some very rare issue. But, you know, rare, but thousands of people have it. And they need... um, Mm -hmm. They literally can't live without formulas. It like breaks one of them breaks down all the amino acids so that they can absorb the nutrients, but they can't eat regular food. Um, so thousands of people in the U.S. like, I mean, have no other choice than to rely on formula. I had no idea that that was a thing until the formula. That's insane. I'm sorry. I'm just hearing that for the first time, and it's hitting me hard. So it's like yeah. you're solely dependent on formula and then we have a formula shortage or a formula contamination and you just have no sustenance. It was bad. Some people some people were hospitalized. Yeah. Um they couldn't find they couldn't find the formula and they couldn't it was all back ordered. Um I still have like you know reporter PTSD from talking to these families. It was awful. Yeah, they couldn't they couldn't find what they needed and it was you know, because basically there was just like a ripple effect across all the formulas. Some of the adult formulas or specialty formulas, the metabolic formulas, are, which are in this like class, which would serve this very narrow population, but it's still thousands of people. Um, mm-hmm. They would, you know, they were diverting and like trying to make more baby formula because the shelves were empty. And the Biden administration actually invoked the Defense Production Act to try to manage the situation because it was that dire. And I mean, it could have been a lot worse. I think we kind of narrowly escaped the worst of it, but 
yeah, I had never thought about like the vulnerability of, I think one of the illnesses is called PKU. And I mean, thousands of people have it and they, they can't survive without these formulas. And that comes down to corporate consolidation. Is that or how consolidated the market is? I think it's I think it's consolidation, but it's also and this happens with a lot of specialty products. It's like the market's just so small, you know, mm-hmm. so you end up only having like one or two companies that really serve it. And it's not really anyone's job to make sure it's diverse. Like in theory, the FTC should be making sure all markets are competitive and diversified, right? But that's not really what we see. We actually are waiting on a report from the FTC on the state of the infant formula market, which I think would include the specialty formulas. And I'm dying to read this report, but FTC is uh, being quite slow in releasing it. Like FDA slow or like regular slow? Regular slow, regular slow. I mean, <laughs> okay. I think they got, they, they got called to do it in spring of 2022. So... I think if it were to come out by spring 2024, that would not be like an abnormal timeline for FTC. Um, But I had been told originally it could come out as early as last spring. So in my mind, it's now delayed. But I think technically two years is like, you know, government reports are, they're not. That's lighting fast for the FDA. (laughs) Yep. All right. Well, I feel like I could talk to you all day, but I think that that's a good place to leave it. We have something to look forward to in Food Fix, which we're all going to subscribe to. Um, And that's where we're going to be keeping up to date on all of these issues. So I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I'm glad you're interested in these issues. And I hope you're enjoying the newsletter. I am. I mean, it really is wonderful. All right, guys, that's it for me and Helena. So I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode. And if you have any questions, my inbox is always open. You can send that email to talk at moderatepartypodcast.com. Don't forget to like, rate, review, follow, subscribe, do all the things, both for this podcast and for Food Fix. And I will see you soon. All right, guys, bye.